Were you all surprised to find that the police department was under investigation by the Department of Justice? No, I wasn't. Because I know the history of the Newark Police Department. When seven-year-olds have a repulsive response to the police, you have a problem. Any change is difficult, you know, especially in an, an entrenched institution like a police department, talking about people who have to admit uh, that there was some wrongdoing. That was a series of excerpts from the 2016 Frontline documentary, Policing the Police. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the Prizes Office at Columbia Journalism School, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, director of the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hi, Abby. Hey, Lisa. So before we get started with today's episode, I believe you have some important news for our listeners. I do. So in response to a ton of requests, for the first time anyone can remember, we have extended the DuPont submission deadline. The new deadline to apply is July 14th at 11.59 p.m., and that means that we also extended the eligibility period. So if you've done any great work up until July 14th of this year, you are still eligible to enter. That's really great news. I mean, there's just been so much happening in the world right now, from the pandemic to this moment of action that's arisen around race and policing after George Floyd's murder. So I'm really glad to hear that those reporters on the front lines have a little extra time to send in their best work for a DuPont silver baton. And that leads us to today's episode. Yes, we're actually revisiting a conversation that we originally aired back in 2017 with frontline producer James Jacoby and our own J School professor, Jelani Cobb, about their documentary, Policing the Police. That's right. Jelani Cobb, as you certainly know, has been covering race and policing for years, and he's written extensively about it for The New Yorker. Because as if teaching at Columbia and working with Frontline weren't enough, he's also a staff writer there. So this issue is really front and center for Jelani. But for this documentary specifically, he said he wanted to look at race and policing from the perspective of the police. And to do that, he got rare access to the gang unit of the Newark Police Department. He actually embedded with them, going on ride-alongs and witnessing firsthand this deeply broken relationship between police officers and the communities they're supposed to serve. And so the question became, how do we as a community fix this broken system? A question we're still obviously talking about today. And in this documentary, Jelani and his producer, James Jacoby, tried to answer that question in a lot of different ways. They submitted public records requests, they talked with community members, and they even took the question to the mayor, Raz Baraka. So let's get into the conversation, moderated by Professor Betsy West. And as always, it's an edited version of the conversation. So there's a lot to talk about with this film. I think uh, briefly, can you explain how it came to be made and how you convinced the city of Newark to cooperate? Sure. Um, the <clears throat> About two years ago, uh, at Frontline, we were just talking about wanting to do something comprehensive about policing, um, given what it was going on at the time. And I was feeling that we really weren't hearing that much from cops. It was kind of a simple idea, Let, let's try to get inside of a department that, especially a department that was under either a consent decree or had been investigated for wrongdoing by the DOJ. 
Um, and I think there's been about 60 or so departments that have been investigated for um, constitutional abuses by the DOJ. And so we reached out to basically every one of them and, um, and flew around trying to get any one of them to let us in. Um, and the only two that agreed to let us in were um, LAPD and Newark. And so we had done a short doc in, at, at, in LA, um, but decided not to do a longer piece, um, in part because LA is just so particular. It's a really rich department. They have tons of resources, and it's not really emblematic of, of the vast majority of departments around the country. And then there was Newark, and they, they bought into the idea of doing something um, in part to kind of tell what officers are up against on the streets in places like Newark. Um, it took months of negotiating with them, and Jelani helped in the negotiations, and we, uh, we finally got access there. But the idea was really just to kind of follow Jelani's journey across the blue line, and especially in an interesting place like Newark, uh, where the cops are, as it says in the film, it's a predominantly black and Latino department. Um, so it added a new wrinkle to the prevailing story out there of white cops, black victims, and things like that. So we just wanted to do it there. Uh, there was one theme that we didn't get a chance to kind of explore as much, but the history that I have with the mayor, which was something we had to figure out early on how to approach uh, because we were college activists together. And many of the things that the city of Newark is grappling with are things that we used to protest, you know, as 20 and 22 and 23 year olds. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, there were whole kinds of layers of getting access to different things. It was like, the, uh, the Russian doll, the Matroska dolls, where you have one thing inside of another inside of another. <laughs> and it was like that with dealing with Newark, so yeah. Did you consider uh, at the beginning that it might be difficult for you to cover this story with your friend being the mayor? Uh, we had, uh, James and Anya and I, who's the um, other producer, we, all, we had conversations about it. But I also talked with David Remnick at The New Yorker about it and what we came up with was that if you're upfront about it, you're saying this is the story of these two people who know each other, mm -hmm. and it's not like we just went to Cleveland where I don't know anyone. We just started walking around and finding out what was going on with the police. There is an actual narrative of what happens when these, in some ways, the idealism of youth runs into the very real entrenched realities of institutions that we were always on the outside of. Yeah. And, and what was it like when you, sort of you are talking to him and presenting to him the results of your reporting with these <laughs> <laughs> difficult conversations? Oh, you mean he, the, before or after he denounced me in public? Yeah. Um, yeah that the actually, whole process. That actually did happen. Uh, and so it, we went back and forth. And like any place, they were trying to figure out what we were doing. Um, and in some instances, they sent us people who they, I guess, thought were great examples of whatever it is they were trying to show. And in other instances, we saw things that they didn't really expect for us to see or didn't, probably didn't want us to see. Uh, and in you know, my private conversations with him after you know, it came out, I said, you know, we didn't invent anything. Mm -hmm. Like, everything that we showed happened. 
And you know, those were the kind of realities. And so on both sides, I said the same things to both people. I said to James and Anya, when we first met, I was like, I'm not interested in doing a hit piece on my friend. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other side, I said to him, I'm not interested in covering up anything. If you find, we find something filthy, we're going to talk about it. And so I felt like I had done like my due diligence to be in the middle of the story. And um, oh, one last thing too, I wanna add one other thing, which is like the question that people always have. I'm sure somebody was probably about to ask this question, which is how did we get them to let us see them doing the things that they did that looked so damning? Mm -hmm. One of the things that was notable to me about this was that the extent to which they were doing things that looked really bad with no clue that what they were doing looked really bad. Right. Yeah. Um, and like, what happens when you're in a closed institutional culture? Yeah, and also just kind of, um, you know, I had gone on a few ride-alongs with them before we brought a camera out, and it was astonishing to me that they really didn't see what they were doing as being problematic. And um, so you weren't cherry picking a few of these moments. It was going no, on every time you not. went out. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's yeah. and it you know as always it's there's so much that ends up on the cutting room floor. But no, there was no cherry picking when it came to what moments we were showing. Obviously, the moments say something and they're emblematic of something larger. But there were lots of encounters that were just questionable, and um, we did want to hear what their justifications were. And that's why we did the public records requests and things like that, but they, they were insufficient. Uh, this is a film that is immersive like a war film is immersive in a way. Another call, two kids running. Come in! Gotta run it! It's clear to me that there's no trust. That's what happens when everyone assumes the worst of everyone else. We're just fed. Why were you clutching? Are you stupid? Huh? You get a rookie cop and he gets shot, he's clutching the whole way. What was the experience like of being out there, you know, night after night? That was, that was a lot. I think James was out more than I was. Yeah. Um, well, there was one thing yeah. that Jelani said one night when we were out there, we were driving back. It was early morning, actually. And um, I think we got into Manhattan, and there was a kid running. And it was a young African-American guy running. And we both kind of had this reaction of like, oh, there must be something wrong here, right? So you kind of, when you're out and seeing it through their lens all the time, you do, you do start, everything seems suspicious. I mean, you, you say there's a line in the right. film that, of being out with the gang unit, that you start to kind of get imbued with the same suspicions, and you just kind of check yourself at a moment and be like, "That's absurd." It's uh, it's it it catches you. There was there was another point too, um, where and this was early on, where they had pulled someone over, and the guy got out of the car, took off running, and you know the police are trying to converge in the area where he is. They don't know if he has a gun. They don't know what the story is. They're trying to like find him. African-American male, early 20s, uh, yellow jacket and blue jeans. Mm -hmm. I remember the description. And we're in the car with these guys, and they come down the street, and there's a SUV, and the back passenger door is open, and there's someone in a yellow jacket and blue jeans rooting around in, like, the back kind of storage area of the SUV. 
So these two officers get out. I'm like, oh, there it is. That's the guy. That's the guy. And they get out. And it's a woman who's probably in her mid-60s. <laughs> but in that instant, I understood exactly how. Like, for a person who is hearing this on the news, you're like, how did you shoot a 60-something-year-old woman mm -hmm. when you were looking for a 20-something-year-old male? Very easily. The answer is very easily. Because I was certain that that was the person. And in that instance, they actually had better instincts about that than I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing, too, is, you know, in Newark especially, there are lots of 12, 13, 14-year-old boys that are armed, and it's a serious problem there. And so I think, you know, in terms of it being immersive, like a, a, a war film and what you're kind of feeling when you're with these guys and what they talk about a lot, the, the kingpins give the guns to the young kids because they're tried as juvies, and so it is a completely frightening prospect of like 12, 13, 14-year-olds who are armed and have nothing to lose or feel like they have nothing to lose and everything to prove. And it's on the minds of these guys all the time. And so it's similar in the respect of covering the military, and that's kind of their enemy. And it's bizarre. But so it was, it was, I mean, it was complicated, too, at the same time, because that didn't give carte blanche to, like, do anything. And I think that that was... What they heard when people were critical of them was that, oh, you don't want us to get guns off the street, or you don't want us to do what it takes to make this neighborhood safe, mm -hmm. or these things. It was like, no, I think what we're saying is that there actually is a constitution, and that these things have to be done in a particular way. And those were dynamics that you came up with again and again and again. The other thing that I think was really disturbing to me was the kind of infallibility of the logic of officers, and we mm -hmm. talked about this again and again and again, yeah. where someone was either obviously guilty or had cleverly camouflaged their guilt. We're doing something even if it wasn't serious. Like right. that guy said, he must right, have been right. doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so I've made the judgment that you've done something. And there's no real way of refuting that judgment. The only thing that you'll get is, okay, you've gamed the system such that I can't prove what you did, but never proceeding to the idea that maybe I actually had a wrong instinct. You know, mm -hmm. it was confirmation bias. Uh, do you see the reforms that the DOJ has suggested? I mean, you know, civilian review boards or body cameras, uh, or is, is there something else sort of more systemic? What do, you, what do you see as the solution for this? I guess your community policing the, the Sergeant Pepper's uh, model. Raz says that change is already starting to happen. So I went for one last ride-along with a cop I was told represents a different kind of policing. That's not just about making arrests, but building trust and relationships. Peppers work the crowd for leads. You can see just being here for a few seconds how, because of relationships, people thought Peppers is here. You know, Peppers, you could talk to her. One of the things about Sergeant Peppers, that there was more to Sergeant Peppers' story uh, than we could even get in. But if we, by telling Sergeant Peppers' story, it will kind of answer your question. So when we were waiting for this uh, informant of his, uh, we were sitting on a dark, dead-end street uh, late at night. And he's waiting for this person who was a gang member who was coming to give him some information. 
And so predictably, reasonably, I was like, how well do you know this guy, you know? Um, and he said, oh, I've been arresting him since he was 15. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, and that makes him your friend? And what he proceeded to say was, I mean, stopped me in my tracks. He was like, yeah, you know, he's trying to get out of this gang life. He does nothing, you know, for him. He's been going to jail, you know, again and again. And, you know, he gives me information, so, uh, you know, I help him out. It's like, so what do you give him? Like, what do you, do you give him money? Like, what's this? And he was like, no, it's like other things. And then, like, later, uh, he tells me, he was like, well, you know, I'm helping, I'm helping him learn to read. And that, I mean, I just, it stunned me. And so if you think that police reform is going to fix the problem of a 33-year-old man who doesn't know how to read in a declining industrial economy, no, it won't. Yeah. Um, and so like the layers of problems, they can't police their way out of. Uh, I think they can do policing much better, like the community policing things and uh, some of the things that Sergeant Peppers was talking about and the body cameras and the DOJ, you know, things that have even the kind of mixed level of success may make things better, but we're never going to have a point where we have perfect policing and substandard housing and high unemployment and terrible education. Like, all these things are part of a kind of larger matrix. Right. Um, but the DOJ program is the best Thing we have at the moment. One of the things we don't think about and I really think is, is important to inform the conversation about policing is that it hasn't professionalized like so many other professions. In that, for instance, if you're a Newark cop and you make a rank, say you become a lieutenant, your rank won't transfer in another department. So you've, you've, you've gone up the ranks in Newark, but you can't transfer to be a lieutenant if you want to move to Alabama or Colorado. And so you're going to be stuck in that department. And that breeds the sort of complacency and the, you're, you're more beholden to the internal politics of that place. And, and the culture. And the culture becomes yeah. absolutely ingrained. It, when you're, we, we had another scene that didn't make it in of the recruitment efforts. It's a, it's a tough job how to recruit in, for newer cops. And who wants to be a cop right now? Many cops today feel like they're under siege from all sides, especially James Stewart, the president of Newark's largest police union. Somewhere along the line, we have become the bad guy. Who is the guy that's going to say, I want to go be a Newark cop? Who's going to want the job? After Taco Bell says no and after Sears says no and McDonald's won't have you, well, maybe the Newark Police Department's hiring. You know, let me go see what they got to offer. As he said, I mean, it's flippant, but he's like, we're getting Taco Bell rejects. Yeah. And um, you're giving them a badge and a gun. And you're expecting them to do one of the most complicated jobs our society has. So it's, it's a long way to reform. How about the, the physical challenges, James, of capturing this material? Were you shooting? How many not. cameras did you have? One. One camera. Yeah, one camera. Wow. Yeah, we had He's an a very good cameraman. Incredible, incredible. Uh, Vic Suarez. He kind of just disappears and has this style that's this roving style. So, this was my first front line, and I was used to the sixty minutes model, which is two crews, tons of lighting, tons of just a huge amount of equipment. I mean, you're you're traveling with twenty, thirty cases of equipment wherever you go, um, and Vic shows up with a backpack. 
And I just was like, this is not going to go well. Um, but Vic was just like, trust me, I'll get it. No problem. Yeah. Um, you both said you made this film to do it from the police point of view. Mm. Um, how, how, what was the reaction from the police? Actually, surprisingly, Jimmy Stewart, the union rep, loved it. And I think one of the main critiques, which I think is fair, is that there's a lot of other parts of the New York Police Department other than the gang unit. That was a small, proactive unit, and it's the most aggressive unit. But there's, for the most part, there's cops that are responding to 911 calls and having to deal with the you know, horrible stuff day in and day out responding to calls. You know, domestic violence calls, homicide calls... And uh, they're really strapped. There aren't many of them to deal with the amount of calls coming in. So if there was a critique that I really do take to heart, it was that, that we did, have, we did focus in on one unit, and it's not emblematic of the department as a whole. One of the other things that happened while we were there that stayed with me was when we were in the uh, command, and what's his name? Uh, Sam Sino. Sino, Sino, right, Sam Sino. Just to some background, right. he's a dispatcher. Right. He's a former cop in Newark. He now works as a dispatcher, dispatching 911 calls when the system was working. Right. Yeah. And so he, it was really like a game of chess, though, because he's looking at the whole city and he's moving cars around. Or like, there was like, and because he knows the city, he was like, it's raining, there's going to be an accident in this area, and so on. And like, this is the number of cars I have, this is the number of crises we're dealing with. And it was something that required a real skill set. Um, and at one point, he's talking about how he prioritizes things. He has a call uh, about an elderly gentleman whose neighbor hasn't seen him for a while, and they want an officer to go in and check on him. And he was like, okay, this is um, a low-priority call, and they're dealing with all these other things. And we're sitting around this afternoon, he eventually gets someone out to that address, and the officer, it comes back over the radio, and he was like, uh, white male, approximately 75 years old, uh, a hammer impaled in his skull. And I was just like, holy hell. Like, you were doing this job where it starts out, the most neighborly thing you can do is kind of check on your elderly neighbor, and you... Now, this is a homicide investigation. Then the kind of dry gallows humor is that Samsino turns to me and says, uh, but I guarantee you that hammer in his head is not natural causes. Um, and you kind of get that they're making light of it to deal with the grimness of what they're doing. Hello. You mentioned negotiating with the police department in order to let them... Uh, let, have them let you film. What are some of the compromises you had to make in order to gain their trust? We didn't compromise. They asked for a lot. They wanted to have a right to edit it, to see it before it aired. They asked for basically right of review, um, which is something that was just completely off the table, not going to happen. What helped assure them was to make some things which are just basic journalistic principles, make them explicit. Like, during the course of our fact-checking process, which is really rigorous, we're going to be asking you for comment on basically any allegations or anything that would negatively reflect on the city. Um, so, you know, I put that in writing to say that, you know, this is our process and 
we did say that we would do a final interview with Raz nearing the end of the project. And I made that explicit because it was something that made them comfortable, but it's something that we would have done anyway. They had also asked us and put it in writing that they wanted us to portray, only portray the city in a positive light. Um, and what was actually remarkable to me was that there were documentary filmmakers that had signed these documents in the past, um, which is scary. You know, we obviously can't, we can't do that, uh, and just said, we'll be fair. And, you know, just I put it in writing, we're going to be fair. And that helped assuage some of their fears. This is the second time I've seen um, this documentary, and I think what really stuck out to me was the way, especially the situation with the uh, head of the gang unit and the way that you were able to kind of contrast his experience as a white man with police with your own feelings and, you know, somehow the, like, the feelings of people of color when they are confronted by police, and that, that can be very different. Um, and I think that really made it so strong, that made that interaction so strong and so telling. So I guess what... I'm wondering, as you know, an aspiring journalist um, and as a white woman, is there still a point of white people reporting on these kinds of things, or is that, to some extent, have we done enough of that and we've heard enough of that white perspective? And then, you know, um, no, we haven't done enough of it, and I wish we had. That we could just say, oh, okay, the story is done and it's you know over. We don't have to worry about it, uh, but we haven't, and it's probably going to become more prominent, I think, as time goes on. Uh, as far as uh, white people reporting on these stories, I think that it's important for anyone to report on anything there, where there is um, truth and rigor, like you've actually adhered to the most rigorous standards of storytelling. And so in some instances, there are things that are familiar, like I've been in the position that um, these young men are in. And so I understand what that was like. But on the other side of it, I had never been in uh, the car with these officers. And so I could not, if we were talking about black police officers, I wouldn't have had any more insight. And so I think that it's just a matter of, um, of doing it well, uh, more than there is just simply kind of who it is that's doing it. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I think it's important that there's diversity in newsrooms and in this uh, profession, but at the same time, I don't want it to be said that, oh, well, we don't want any of the black people to be foreign correspondents because what do they know about India, you know? Or we can kind of do this color-coordinated thing that we would not be good in the, in the aggregate. So I think good storytelling and good investigation and good um, journalism is good journalism. Hi. Hi. Uh, that was a wonderful film. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to be honest, though, it's depressing. Um, I'm literally physically kind of ill, my stomach right now. To put it in perspective, I've been on both ends, too. Ten years ago, as a young man, I was a Marine in Fallujah, Iraq. And I know the cycle and culture of violence that I created. There are members of ISIS who were probably produced by some of the things me and my friends did. 2012, I'm a young undergraduate here at Columbia in West Philly visiting my sister and my nephew. A SWAT team kicks in the door for a mistaken address on a felony warrant. And I'm sitting there on the couch, SWAT around my nephew and thinking, wow, this is what I did to other people once upon a time. And all of that, the cycles and cultures of violence which feeds all this, 
Like I'm sitting there watching, and as you said, it's so much bigger than police reform. It's the war on drugs, it's the lack of a war on guns, it's the economy, it's education. And my mind's racing, and I know that's why my stomach's all a mess right now. And I'm not going to ask you all to solve that. I mean, this is, and I apologize. It's not really an academic question. It's more of a personal question. It's, do either of you have any lighter hope that you can send me off with? So you know, on my way home uptown, I don't burst into tears, you know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I think Raz Baraka in Newark is seen as a total ray of hope there. I've covered a lot of politicians. He's not really a typical politician. He speaks his mind freely. He's pretty honest with constituents. Um, he's kind of 24-7 trying to respond to things. And I do think that there's the ray of hope would be in actual committed political talent. And Raz, I think, is that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I'll just tell you a quick anecdote about Raz, uh, which is that when we were about 20, we were all in Newark. And like a group of us uh, students had come up from DC and kind of young men, we had this culture of joking insults. We were always insulting each other about you know different things, and that was just kind of a given. Uh, and I really pissed Raz off about the most, to me, innocuous thing, um, considering we would insult each other about really personal stuff, jokingly. You couldn't get mad about it, you know? But we were all in Newark, and uh, I said, there's not a single decent place to eat in this dive, you know? He was done. He <laughs> was like, you can joke about my appearance. You can joke about my family. Do not joke about Newark. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, we've been friends for 28 years. I have never joked with him about Newark again. Like, that's just, that was a thing. But I think it was actually a virtue that he, like, cares tremendously about that community. And so people really are invested uh, and the idea that things can be different. I'm not sure, uh, um, did we talk about this? Did we mention it? His sister was murdered. Yeah. Um, and so when he is looking at these issues, it's not abstract. Uh, and so that's a very real thing that they're, they're grappling with in that community. And uh, beyond that, there were other things like uh, Officer Rainey, Detective Rainey, uh, who uh, was really a fascinating figure. We probably could have done a story on her. Mm -hmm. um, she is a, a police homicide detective. Her son was killed, was it three years ago, I guess, about that? Yeah. It must be now three years, yeah. I think. Yeah. And uh, it's unsolved. And so she works homicides, saying that she feels a little bit better being able to help other people's families. Uh, and I feel like you don't really have the possibility of being pessimistic when you look at the weight that's on that person's shoulders, um, knowing that the police department that she works for has been unable to solve the homicide of her own son. So that kind of gets rid of the issue of saying, well, they just don't care. If they cared, they would solve it. No, these are issues that go deeper than that, but still puts on that uniform and goes out, um, well, she's plain clothes, but 
you know, grabs that badge every night and goes out to try to help make that city better. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again to James Jacoby and Jelani Cobb for taking the time to talk to us and our students. Yeah, and what a great conversation. It feels more relevant every day. In fact, Frontline just re-aired the piece in May, and it's also available online, so check it out if you haven't had a chance to see it yet. Indeed. And in fact, Jelani is still working with Frontline on this beat. He and James Jacoby and another Frontline producer, Anya Borg, are following up on this documentary with another one called America's Police Problem, which is scheduled to air in September. And he and our friend Professor June Cross, who runs the documentary program here, are also collaborating on another program about voter suppression on Frontline, and that will run later in the fall. In the meantime, we in the Prizes office will be staying busy, even if we're doing it remotely for now. So quickly before we go, Lisa, remind the good people one more time about our extended DuPont deadline. Yes, as I said, the DuPont Awards have extended the submission deadline by two weeks, so you can submit work until July 14th, right up until 11.59 p.m. The eligibility period is also extended, so any work up until July 14th is eligible for entry. Go to DuPont.org and send us your best work and maybe get a silver baton. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. And it was produced by our own J School grad, Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from Carissa Kuyambao and Jack Rosser-Munley. And as always, our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.